Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. I'm here with Kate Ryder from Maven Clinic. Maven Clinic raised over $300 million and has recently announced their Series E funding from General Catalyst and others, and is one of the only unicorn startups in women's healthcare. Prior to founding Maven, Kate was a successful VC and a journalist. But these are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. In 2016, Maven Clinic looked very different to the thriving unicorn it is today. The emerging startup was making great progress following its seed round, but knowing the realities of having only so much cash runway, Kate had her eyes on their Series A. During talks with investors, she was told they had to increase revenue to 1 million ARR, but here's the problem. There was no way, based on our sales cycle and our average contract size, we're going to get that million dollars by the time we needed to raise the A. And so we noticed this dynamic where we had a ton of college students using our consumer product, Maven Marketplace, where they were booking quick you know, doctor's appointments, getting birth control prescriptions. And so we thought, what if we launched a subscription consumer product for college girls called Maven Campus? And so we did that. We interviewed a ton of college students and we called them campus ambassadors. So they said, yes, we definitely need this product and we don't have as much access as we need to. And in college where, you know, women's health is stigmatized, there's not as much mental health. So we heard the need loud and clear. And then a lot of these campus ambassadors who were recruiting their friends, introducing us to their parents, we talked to their parents and their parents were like, oh yeah, I'd buy a subscription for my student because at the time we knew college students didn't have a ton of money. And so we were hoping to, that their parents would kind of pay for this. So everything was checking out in this early kind of user interview process. And then when push came to shove, we launched the product and it totally fell flat. And the reason is, I think a lot of the parents of the college students were just being nice uh, and and polite. And they didn't, you know, their, their daughters had kind of introduced them to this founder and, and her team. And, and so they just, they didn't understand the depth of the problems of campus health. They didn't understand telemedicine at that point. This was 2016. And they also just didn't want to think about their daughters having sex and needing birth control. So there was like a lot of, a lot of issues there. Um, and so we then had to make a really tough call whether we were going to continue to, you know, try to make this work or thankfully our pipeline for our B2B business really started growing at that point. And we had, we got a few new customers. And so we were able to make a really quick decision, I think within three or four months that Maven Campus wasn't working, but very thankfully the, our pipeline had just massively increased. We had just had this influx of interest for our family benefits product and women's health product in corporate America we signed, I think, two clients at that point, and so we were okay, and we were able to raise a series at EA off the back of that pipeline. So thankfully, everything was okay, but it was definitely a very quick failure, and I think we're, we're our team's proud of how quick it was. Yeah, a few questions on that. First, the user interviews. I think that's true for a lot of people, right? You can ask somebody if they'll pay for something, and they'll say yes, but then the only way you know if they do is if they actually pay for it, right? It, has it changed the way you interview and do user research since then? 
Yes. Use, yes. A hundred percent. It's also like when you do references on people, it's like, who gives a bad reference? You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, we're lucky that we're much more evolved now. And so when we are launching new products, we just launched menopause this year, um, just went live two weeks ago, actually. And, you know, that is both kind of interviewing, um, the, the users and the customers, the buyers, which is the health plans and the companies, but then it's also, you know, getting it in market as quickly as possible with a set of beta users. So we can just see through the data, you know, what they're using, what they're not using. Um, and so that was, it's a much more straightforward process now. Yeah. The data tends to not lie, right? Yeah, Exactly. I want to ask you about that $1 million Series A, because I think a lot of founders think that, right? They like have to have a $1 million ARR for a Series A. And it doesn't seem to be always the case, but it's a rule some people give. Do you, did you, did you need it in that raise? How was your Series A in general? And do you think that it's always a rule of thumb or do you think it really depends on the business? Oh man, we're hitting on all the challenges up front. So our Series A was a disaster. Um, it was a really, really tough fundraise because a lot of people didn't believe in the promise of women's health. There were not a lot of female uh, VCs at all that I was pitching. We were still a really small and unproven business. And there was just a lot that you had to really believe in, in our team, in our product, in our market, in our vision. And so that, that was a lot to ask. So I guess in in hindsight, I wish we had not launched Maven Campus, and I wish we had just understood that we were never going to get that million ARR for our Series A, and we just needed to find an investor who believed. Because most of the Series A's out there, whether you have a million ARR or not, it's just vision, and it's just product market fit, or at least some of the signals for it. It's founder market fit. And so I, I think we had a lot of really strong signals along those lines, but we didn't fit into that one box because B2B to C healthcare just takes a little bit longer. And so in retrospect, I wish we had just, you know, had met more VCs up front. And that's eventually what we had to do anyway, because we got rejected so many times from so many VCs that at a certain point I was like, I either want to meet a woman or a healthcare investor, no one else, because there's just too much education on the problem we're solving and the market we're in if they don't fit one of those two boxes. Yeah. This was your first time founding, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And also as a first time founder, I think it's so hard to realize how many VCs are actually out there, right? Because everyone knows like the top five or six names. And I've had so many times where a founder comes to me, they're like, everyone rejected me. And they went to like six people. And you're like, there's literally hundreds of VCs. So just find someone who understands your pain point, gets it. But it's interesting that you said that about the campus program because yeah in some ways it's almost like you built that just to prove the revenue for the investor and I see a lot of founders who are like okay what do I do need to do to raise the next round and yes you need to raise the next round and it is kind of gas in the tank you need to keep going but a lot of times if you just build the business you should build to your point you just need to find the right person who believes it yep correct yeah that's exactly right and so I that was a good early lesson um, that I had to learn the hard way but I would definitely give that advice to all future founders is just Find the investor who really understands your market, believes in you, believes in the problem. And, um, you know, there's more than there's five investors out there. I, I think what, what our turning point was Female Founders Fund, which is one of our seed investors that partner sat me down and printed out a list of like every female investor on CV Insights or something. And I was like, wow, there's actually a lot more here than I would have thought. And, the, and then the person I met, um, you know, came from that 
from that list. And she was incredible. She was pregnant with her third child, Lauren Brugan. She's now, um, she's now at Heritage Fund, which is a big healthcare fund in Tennessee. Um, but she, at the time, was at Spring Mountain Capital, who have been fantastic Series A investors. And I had never heard of them, about them um, because they didn't have a brand name. Yeah, and they do a lot of healthcare. Totally. And yet, all of a sudden, I, I was face-to-face with this amazing female who was a mom who understood our problem, who knew healthcare with a small B2B focused fund in New York. And was like, oh my gosh, how did I not know you when I started this process? Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that not Andreessen and Sequoia, they're not the only funds out there on index, as you know. Let's back up because your story as a human is just super interesting, right? You've been a journalist, you've been a VC, you've been a founder, you've lived in Singapore and London and New York, and I'm sure other places that I didn't find online. Um, Just tell us quickly kind of your story, maybe what made you make the transitions that you did. I also have been through quite a few career transitions. And I think it's always interesting to see kind of what made you make certain moves along the way. Sure. So I always like to tell sometimes when I meet college students or 22 year olds who are just kind of entering the world, I always like to say like, I don't believe people are really adults until they're 25. That was advice that was given to me when I was graduating college. So, you know, I went to Michigan undergrad I basically went to classes and I, I waitressed all through college. So I was spending, you know, good chunk of my time out of, out of class doing that. Then I moved to Spain and I taught English in the public school system there. And so I was, I feel like I was able to really get a lot out of, of my system uh, in terms of living and life. And, you know, in my early, in those early days, I wanted to be a journalist. And so I was always practicing writing on the side. I was reading a ton to kind of learn the, you know, reading and and writing to learn the craft of writing. And it was really uh, only when I was, you know, 24, I I worked at the Parish Review, which is a literary magazine in New York. And so, you know, started to cut my teeth on journalism. And then I worked for a stint at the New Yorker um, in their web department. And so I I, I started to kind of put together the the building blocks of what it would be to be a, a journalist. And I think when that was happening, that the whole time the media industry was shifting from bricks and mortar print to online. And this idea of long form journalism was kind of going away. And so a lot of the journalists that I admired and respected were being pushed into this blogging world, which did not sound very appealing because you couldn't really get into a, a story and, and you didn't have the economics to really get into a story anymore. And so when I was in Singapore, I was working for The Economist um, and I was reporting out a story on the uh, online travel industry and there was a clear business opportunity. I was reporting on this very successful American entrepreneur in China um, that created, uh, Fritz Demopoulos was his name, that created Chunar, which is one of the biggest Chinese travel sites. I thought, wow, like there's there's so much here. Travel is such a growing industry in Asia. What if we started a business? And I was, you know, talking to my husband's friend at the time who was living in Hong Kong. I was living in Singapore. And so that was what my first crack at entrepreneurship. And my dad, you know, it, it didn't feel totally crazy because my dad is an entrepreneur. My aunt um, that I grew up with is an entrepreneur. My mom would, you know, help both of them. And so my dad gave me a great piece of advice as I was kind of trying to get this started. And and he was probably looking at the lay of the land and was like, you're in Singapore. You've never done this before. (laughs) Like Your partner's in Hong Kong. He's never done this before. Like This doesn't really seem like, you know, this is going to work. But he was very encouraging. But he just said, you know what, why don't you just go learn on someone else's dime? Um, And so that was, I think, very good advice because then I was able to go work a little bit more outside of journalism. I eventually got a job in venture capital for a few years um, before starting Maven. Yeah. 
good advice. Go dad. Um, also, one of my favorite quotes is life is not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And I feel like that's such a lovely part of the story you just told is that in your twenties, you just, especially before you have kids, right? There's a lot of time you get to experiment and do a lot of things to see what you like and what you don't like. And kind of the only way to know is by trying in a number of ways. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it was a good life advice. I had to, you know, I was living on my own dime. So I I had to work, you know, enough to live, but I was able to have this uh, wonderful life in New York and in Madrid and in London um, before kids to really kind of understand what it was that would truly inspire me and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So that by the time Maven came around and kids came around, I I gotten a certain amount out of my system. Yeah. And maybe we're just alike on this one. So not everyone has to agree, but I I think living in other countries, especially where you don't speak the language is just pushes you to develop and grow in a different way. Um, I've been fortunate to live in a number of countries and I think it just pushes you to understand yourself and the broader world around you differently than you would otherwise, which is awesome. So the founder journey, you know, you've been on a crazy ride. You've grown incredibly. And I think you were the first unicorn in women's health and one of the first female founded unicorns. How has it been? What has been harder than you imagined and what has been better than you imagined? Well, um, it's gone by in a blur. Uh, So I think, you know, I look at the chapters of Maven in a few different phases, kind of the beginning phases. I think looking back, I think you always think everything, um, you have some nostalgia for it. The beginning phases were we're truly just my team, my founding team, myself. We were, we're truly moving mountains to make this product work and get it in the hands of users. And we had no idea what was what was in store. And it's not like anyone on the founding team, myself included, ever started a company before. So we just, you know, I had this idea. I put together a, a, a wonderful mission-driven founding team. And then we just kind of worked around the clock, being super scrappy to get a product out and then get it in the hands of the users and, and see what works, see what didn't work, and then eventually ensure that we have the right business model to be a sustainable business. So that was the, the early days. I would say then um, the middle years would probably be the hardest because when you're going from 100 to call it 300 people, you often, you don't have the it processes built. You're building. You're building them for the first time. So we always like to say you're building the plane while flying it, and that's really where if you're building the plane while flying it. Like you're actually building a wing at that point. And so right now we're still building the plane and flying it, but it's it's different now. It's like we have a lot of stuff. We're still building a ton, but at that point it was really hard. And the company is changing every twelve to eighteen months. So people who were amazing at certain stages of the early days might not have been the right people you know, when you're 200 or 300 people. And so I think it was just this constant movement and this constant change to ensure that the business was growing. We were shipping the right products. We had the right team. We were uh, living by our values as a company. You know, we were embracing a service mindset for our customers, for our patients, for our providers. And so now we're at almost um, 500 people. And I think it's, it's still extremely fun and it feels like we're still, still very scrappy, but we have that foundation built where now we're able to follow some of the data of the users to continue to launch features and and, and make our product better and better and better for, for them, as well as get into new areas of women's and family health. And when you're in that phase where you're trying to figure out, because I know exactly what you're talking about, at the beginning, you kind of have these smart generalists. And then as you scale, you need actually pretty people with credible experience. You need a CFO who's been a CFO before or head of marketing that understands growth. And 
the smart generalist doesn't always get you there. So how do you figure out, you know, when people are evolving along the journey versus when you think that they're not able to kind of find another role within the company or things like that? Sure. So I, I think one of the best parts is if, if you know, and I was a first-time manager, so I'm, I think I'm much better today than I was five years ago, and hopefully I'll be much better in five years than I am today. But, um, but I think in the early days, what was great about the, um, the, the first group of people is that when they were realizing like how crazy and hard this, this was and how, you know, some of them opted out. And so they were like, whoa, like this is, I don't want to work in a startup. <laughs> and a lot of these people, they, they went to bigger companies, like big corporates or whatnot. And I think it was like, they're very proud of the time they spent kind of doing this like grunt work. And they're like, this is not that I want a life, you know, like this is not for me. Um, I, or, or they can have impact in different ways without kind of, you know, literally having to work until midnight and try to figure out how to describe telemedicine to a bunch of people who don't understand it. So, so that was the the early years. I think in the middle, that was the hardest because you had a lot of smart generalists, but then you had a lot of first time managers as well. So you're developing your muscle as a culture of management. And one of the most important things is obviously giving two-way feedback, right? Feedback, the feedback up, feedback down so that people can, you know, really improve and, and grow a career. And so I think that one of the most important things we're doing today is just making sure our managers are equipped to do that so that if Maven is growing a lot and people's growth themselves need to kind of keep up with that, that they're getting the right career development from their managers. If they're a first-time manager, they're getting coaching on that. If they're a more seasoned manager, great. Um, you know, we we really do look for seasoned managers when we hire now so that, you know, people can grow in their careers. And it's one of my favorite parts, quite frankly, now of the job is like when we see people that maybe were with us five, six years ago and they've grown a career at Maven, they've had babies at Maven. And that's just really, really cool to see. Yeah. You're, you're like music to my ears right now. I think management training is something that sounds boring. It's like not talked about enough. It's so pivotal. You literally startups by definition, you're growing at a fast rate. You often hire smart young people who keep growing and very few people have actually had managerial training, especially if they don't come from a corporation or something. And so people tend to leave managers, not companies. And so if you don't get that right, you can really lose a lot of your best people. And not because you don't have a great mission, you don't have a great culture. It's just the individual management experience is horrible for that person. And so we actually, Kindred actually offers management training to our portfolio, which I don't normally talk about because we don't really talk about ourselves on the podcast. But I think that it's a it's a really pivotal thing that I wish every startup was doing because it's really hard at the beginning to have the resources for that. But if you upskill the management, my theory is that on the board, like most of the time, you don't actually see those issues in the day-to-day that are truly happening in the company. And that's what actually matters, like keeping your best talent and having them have good management experiences is one of the most important things you can do as a founder. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think, again, at the end of the day, building a business is so hard. It requires so much work, so many hours. And so, yes, I'm putting it in, but so is my whole team. And so we really, I feel a responsibility where we have to do right by them. And we certainly don't always get it right and we're not perfect, but at least to be aware of the fact that you know, if, if somebody is working at Maven, then they should be able to really professionally grow here um, is, is really important to, you know, to your point around retaining talent as well. The companies are only uh, as good as their people. Totally. You moved from VC to founder and you're up to the US, you know, did your time in VC in any way impact, do you think your ability to be a good founder? And how was Europe versus US tech scene, at least when you moved over? Sure. So I worked at Index Ventures for two years in London. And I think what was just so 
eye-opening about that. I had never, you know, I had reported on the tech scene from The Economist, um, but I had never actually worked in it. And so I was so inspired by so many of the founders I met, um, you know, during those two years. Some of them, you know, became friends. Some of them became investors in Maven. Um, I was, you know, I always made sure Index was, I know Index is now this giant, um, you know, successful global VC fund. And, and they were at that point, they were just getting started though. So, so it was still a culture where I was able to just roll up into um, Monday pitch presentations and saw both U.S. and European founders pitch or, you know, the conferences that uh, that we went to during those years. It was still, London was still a relatively small scene. And so just as this kind of young, random associate at a VC firm, um, you know, I was able, I went to as many talks as possible and I, I just was able to talk to a ton of founders. And so, it was, and, and then I was able to observe, um, you know, through some of the board meetings, I, I, I was able to go to just how a board meeting was run. I didn't at the time know a lot about, I, I certainly still can't build a financial model, but I was really kind of going through the financials of a lot of these companies to try to better understand how they were operating. So there was, I mean, you know, similar to how I, I learned Spanish in, um, in Madrid, um, there was a little bit of I was I was learning things on the go and asking a ton of questions of my colleagues around me. I had some of my greatest friends, you know, from my twenties and early thirties. I made well at Index, and um, you know they would they would help me. And I was like, "What does this mean?" And you know, "What does EBITDA mean?" And so, um, so anyway, so it was it was really fun. And then by the time. I was able to then launch Maven. I had, um, I was, I was inspired, and I knew some of the the, the, the stories of what worked, and I, I had heard a lot of what didn't work as well. Amazing. And do you perceive much difference between the two tech scenes, the U.S. and Europe? Or yes, <laughs> yes, I do, I do. But I, at the end of the day, um, I haven't been in London, you know, in ten years, and I think the London scene is very, very different. Um, well, it's not ten years, eight years. I haven't been there in eight years, and so it's it's probably very different and big, much bigger than it is today. I mean, I still go to Founders um, Forum and and some of our early angel investors are European and I, I, I keep up with all of them and I see them when they come to New York. So, I, but I haven't lived it. And so, you know, I think New York probably and London have similarities in that it's a smaller scene. There's a lot more access to the entrepreneurs of the big companies, of the small companies. There's just a lot more um, mixing there. I think San Francisco... Is 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 in its own league um, because there's just a density of so many entrepreneurs and VCs there that uh, it's just kind of a cesspool of ideas. And so I, I just know that every time I take that flight from New York to San Francisco, which feels very long, much longer from London to San Francisco, but every time I take that flight, it's a long flight, but I know I'm going to get off the plane and I'm going to have like a few days of just back to back to back meetings, and it's just going to. I'm going to learn so much. Um, and that's super helpful. But then when I come back to New York, I think there, what's great is that there's um, a lot more balance because, you know, there's so many different industries here and, and it's it's not as much of a just tech only culture. Um, and so, you know, I can take some of that, that frenzied, um, those frenzied conversations and ideas and, and inspiration that I get in San Francisco. But then, you know, really then think about it through a New York lens, which is maybe a little bit more boots on the ground. 
I'm so biased because I spent seven years in New York and I consider myself also a New Yorker and I love it. But I agree with the diversity of industries is absolutely incredible. And I think innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen, unfortunately, just sitting with a glass of wine. Like it happens from taking an idea from one place and putting it in another. And you just have so many industries there that it's an incredible breeding ground, honestly, for, for new thinking. Yeah, exactly. So we can't, obviously, we definitely can't finish the podcast today at some point without talking about being a mom and a working mom, because you have three kids, you founded a company in women's health, you've done it for, you know, you're serving women, but you're also very much one yourself as a mother. And so how is working mom life as a founder specifically? Well, that's a whole nother masterclass um, that I am learning on the go and I have some great um, founder moms and, and, and mentors along that. But you know, I think when you have three kids, at least a husband and I, like we have like a, a household that we need to operate, you know, they need to get to school and they need to be fed healthy food. <laughs> like we need to, um, you know, plan ahead in ways that we had never planned ahead before kids. And so, yeah, so it's a lot more uh, details and logistics and work. However, there's so much joy. And I think one of the most important ways I personally keep balance is when I get home after whether the day's gone well or hasn't gone well, like my phone's in my bag and I get to play with my kids and they're six, four and one. And so it's this magical age where we read books and we play games and we talk about the trees and the wind <laughs> and the Halloween. And, um, and it's just, totally rejuvenating so that when I get back into the grind, um, you know, I've, I've genuinely had just a, such a, a wonderful um, time with my, with my family, you know, and my kids, I go to bed and I probably get back on email or maybe go out to dinner sometimes if we're feeling, <laughs> if, if, you know, the, the week allows it. But, um, but yeah, and, and I also recognize this is probably the busiest I'll ever be in my entire life because, when your kids are that young, they need you all the time. When you're, when Maven is scaling a lot, you know, it needs me all the time. And so I don't have a second to myself at the moment, but I also know that one day I will have tons of time to myself and I'll probably miss this time. For sure. I think that is actually the hardest part is maintaining that perspective because you're so in the thick of it and so tired, but you just know that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, you'd probably pay anything to just come back and just and live this moment again, whatever it is, whatever craziness it is, right? Playing with the cars or doing, you know, reading the book. Totally. Like Halloween decorations and pumpkin picking. It's so fun. And it's like, I'm not going to be able to do this forever. So that uh, we, I definitely have an outlet in like creative play and dance and singing and holidays. <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> yeah, my son, it's, it's his first pumpkin. He's two and a, and a change. So he just started talking and he calls it pumpkin. And I said, he said gunkin first or something, but anyway, it was very fun to pick out his first pumpkins and, and the, the pumpkin fell off the street underneath the car, which he was very excited about because he loves cars. So he recounted that for like days. And then someone stole our pumpkin because we live in downtown London and so that's what happens, but um, <laughs> it is really, really fun. And I think I think it's it's good that we're talking about it in such a positive light because it's not that it's not challenging. Of course, it's tiring and all of that, but I think that not enough people talk about it in a positive light. And at least my own experience of being a working mom, and I'm only onto the second one a little bit, but is that nine out of 10 weeks are pretty good. There's always something that throws you the 10th week. They get chicken pox, they're not sleeping, they're teething, whatever. But you know, you just get so much joy out of the day with them and, and it does work, right? It's not that it's perfect, but it's never perfect. And, and it's, it's beautiful. So I'm glad to see that it's also a point of rejuvenation. And plus, like, if you want to have kids, 
You only need to have one if you're a founder. We chose to have three because we really, really enjoy it. But um, if you want kids and you also want a company and you just, you know, you could stop at one. That's also cool. A bunch of my friends have one kid. Yeah, you have four kids basically, right? Because you also have Maven, which is yeah. a lot of time and energy. So uh, you, you're, you're much braver than I am. I'm good at two. We're going to call it. <laughs> Anything else that you wish was talked about more that you wish founders knew or that maybe you would do differently if you founded a company again today from scratch? You know, I, I just think really it's it's all about the people, you know, starting a company really truly is because if you reach a roadblock in your growth, you know, y- the founder may have a brilliant idea or a member of your team may have a brilliant idea. And so it's so, you know, culture is so important and 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 both getting the right people and making sure that the the wrong people you don't hire as well and they don't come into your culture. And so, um, cause culture is so additive, you know? And so I think probably the thing I wish I did earlier and we do it now, but I, it took a bit, um, is to just really lean on your values as you're, as you're interviewing people to hire. And so doing, making sure you do values interviews and knowing what your values are and, you know, values get refreshed every few years as the company's different and the business grows. And so, you know, but at that point in your growth, make make sure that when you're bringing people on that you're really going deep on values because, you know, when we get it right, it's typically because values are super aligned and they're a total rock star. If we get it wrong, it, it sometimes it's because values aren't aligned. And so that's, you know, and, and some people can be great in some cultures, but not in others. And so, you know, making sure that the, the people you hire align to your own company's values. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and, Company culture comes up a lot on the podcast. As you might imagine, it's one of the most pivotal things in growing a startup. I'm going to end actually on a bit of a strange question on a different type of culture. But because you've lived you know, in Asia and Europe and the US, as you got to experience those cultures, which is different when you're living there, right, versus visiting, you know, is there any takeaways for you that you got to experience those cultures? Or do you think it changed you as a person in any specific ways from being across so many cultures? It's a good question. I think that I'm a naturally really curious person. And so I think one of the things, particularly uh, my two years in Madrid, where I had to actually learn the language to be able to participate in the culture, that was an act of patience, I think. I mean, I didn't, I was very, uh, I was a little crazy, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I moved in with non-English speakers and I sat in front of these telenovelas with like a workbook and would just learn Spanish. Um, and, uh, and I think, and so I just didn't speak for like the first six months because I didn't know how to speak. And of course I'd, you know, call my parents and I'd speak to my friends, but, but in that culture. And so I think it just forced a certain faith in time that eventually I would be able to learn Spanish. It, it, it enforced like a faith in people that, you know, I had friends who were there that knew I, my English was, or my Spanish was not very good, but they were patient with me. And, and, and so it was, there was just a, a beauty in being truly without a language and having to learn it from scratch and having the kindness of so many of my friends during that time. And, and I had to hustle. Like I had to, you know, I did, I remember, once a week, I did what was called an intercambio, which I, I would sit and I would, you know, teach English to someone for 30 minutes and they would teach me Spanish. So I was constantly like doing those things. And I think that was um, that that. Yeah, I, I think it, it just it made me more of an optimist, I guess. Like it was a very hard thing to do, but I eventually did it. And I did it with the kindness of of the of the Madrileños and my, my, my friends there and, and the community there. And so um, and then Singapore. uh you know, similar in, in London, like we, I, I was with my husband at the time. So it was a little different. I had someone else to lean on. Um, but you know, yeah, just you, you, 
there's a lot of kindness in a lot of communities that, you know, we read all of these headlines about how terrible the world is right now. And, um, but I think when you really get into boots on the ground, if you really get into the communities, you know, people are just living their lives and there's lots of great people, you know, some bad eggs, but, um, but, you know, to, to really make a life in a new country and to, you know, not offend people as you're doing it, you, you have to, have a certain amount of empathy and you have to rely on, on people and you have to give back as well. And so I think those were all really good lessons to, you know, particularly in this day and age where uh, the world is very uncertain and there's a lot of negativity and toxicity um, in the press and, you know, and, and how people are interacting with each other. I, I, I do kind of have faith, hopefully that we'll find our way out of it because I do fundamentally think, you know, at the end of the day, pe- people generally are pretty good. Yeah, you are so right. Um, I actually had a very similar experience in Brazil. Try- I moved there without speaking Portuguese and I ended up trying to co-found a company there. Um, but it gives you a lot of empathy when you can't express yourself and you can't. And and you're right. People are just, at the end of the day, surprisingly, can be in a very different culture, but people just want to live their lives. They want to have family. They want to have a job. They want to do well by society. And for the large part, um, people are surprisingly very similar across the globe. Um, well, that you are clearly a very resilient, curious, successful, wonderful human. So Thank you for being on today's podcast and I'll give you back your time because I'm sure you have a lot of things you should be doing with these minutes right now. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat. Thanks, Kate, for being with us. If you want to learn more about Maven Clinic or are looking for an incredible startup to join, go to mavenclinic.com. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if this story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Founders Uncut.